Welcome to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist, brought to you by the Board of Conscious Capitalism in Connecticut. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also to business owners, startups and entrepreneurs. The Curious Capitalist is available on all of the world's biggest podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. Never miss an episode again and subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts from. Welcome along to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. Now, I'm excited about this one. I've got to be honest. I am joined today with Tom Quinn from Nouveau Pasta. Now, Tom is the Executive Vice President and the Chief Operating Officer of Nouveau Pasta Productions, as well as being a published author with Cape View Press. I'm excited to find out more about Tom and the work he's doing. Tom, welcome to The Curious Capitalist. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's a real pleasure. The pleasure is all mine, as they say. So come on then, Tom, tell me a little bit about you and how you got to where you are today. No problem. I started out in the food business, scrubbing shelves. So I came <laughs> out of uh, Fairfield University with a degree in economics. And my father pulled some apparently very short strings and got me a job scrubbing shelves with a food brokerage, which basically is an operation that operates as a sales force where people, companies don't have them. So uh, I started there, then I started managing that group, then I took on another job and managed that group. And it was really the best way, although I didn't feel that way in my 20s, to come up through the system and be able to learn all the pieces and really have hands-on management. And that really led me to where I am today and the opportunities that I've been afforded very gratefully. And it also led me to the book, Delivering Greatness. I captured a lot of those learnings in that book because it's been a 35-year business journey and a 57-year life journey. And the ability to capture all those learnings and try and help folks along the way. You know, I've stepped in enough bear traps in my life. I'm drinking a cup of tea right now. It's coming out my ankles. That's how you can tell I've been in a lot of bear traps. So I figure <laughs> if people can learn, you know, from my mistakes, it's always best to learn if you're learning from somebody, learn from somebody else's mistakes. It's a lot sure. less painful. And that's really what the genesis of this book was. I've been mentoring a lot of young folks over the last couple of decades. And I basically captured a lot of what I've shared. The people I work with here at Nuovo, when they read the book, said, yeah, we saw the live version. There's really not anything else here. <laughs> and that's really what it is, you know, because I wanted to share these things. That's what brought all this into existence. How many years did you... Now, I guess the question is, did you always plan on writing a book? So whilst you were going through these various avenues of life, did you always plan in the back of your mind to write a book? I did not. I've been writing the book for a little over 10 years. It's not because I'm a slow writer, but it's because <laughs> I actually had three quarters of the book written within the first, I would say, two years. Honestly, this was actually the combination of two books. So I'd written the first book and it had done so well in my dresser drawer, the logical thing was to write a second. <laughs> so I started writing the second one. And then, like most people, the reason most people, I talk about this frequently, the reason most people aren't successful at something is they just don't know how. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to be mediocre today. That's not a thing. People wake up and they want to do the right thing. They want to be successful. They just don't know how. And President Company included, I had this book written. I had two actually written. And I had no idea how to get to the finish line. So I managed to find a Sherpa. Somebody who was in the publishing business, who had worked for Simon & Schuster and for Amazon, and now he was on his own. And he really guided me through the process. And I tell folks all the time, 
when you can't find your way doing it yourself there's no you know extra points for that the points are for getting over the finish line so the key is really to find somebody who's done it who knows it and let them guide you through the fog and that's what brought this book to, to fruition so from start to finish how many years do you think in the making has this book taken well it was 10 years of writing and then about seven months from the meeting the guy to being published. Wow. So I, we, we met the first time in November of last year. And by July 2nd, I was available on most online platforms. That's phenomenal. Absolutely amazing. And we will direct our listeners how to get hold of this book that has spent more time in a drawer than out in the public domain. We will definitely do that towards the end of this podcast. So back to the business side of things. Tell me a little bit about the, the growth, I guess, of the business over the years and what has been, I guess, some of the biggest challenges that you faced. It's really important to listen to the sidewalk. That food brokerage that I started with, Scrubbing Shelves, by the time I was done with my eight-year tenure there, I had was running a $52 million business with just Metro New York alone. Wow. Uh, worth two and a, two and a half million dollars annually to the company in commission. <laughs> That's a lot of jobs for a 30 year old to be in charge of. Yep. However, I was living in Connecticut and commuting to New Jersey every day. So it was 80 miles in the morning, 80 miles at night, which when you're a young man is fine. But when we started having kids, it was a problem. Mm -hmm. And my wife, after a while, had just had enough of that. I don't blame her and said, you have two choices. You can find a new job or find a new family. I'm very difficult to live with. So I decided it was easier to find new employment than it was <laughs> to find a new family, which actually worked out fine because the brokerage was very kind. They said, you'll always have a home here if it doesn't work out. I found another job with rich products out of Buffalo, New York. And I said, that's great. I really appreciate that. Five weeks later, the corporation, the brokerage went chapter seven, full liquidation, 5,000 people out of work nationally, no severance, no Cobra, know nothing. And everybody was calling me up to find out what I knew because they thought I had known something and, and exited. I said, I knew my wife was going to leave me if I didn't try another job is what I knew. And it really brings to the forefront that life is a game of inches, not feet. And people think there's a lot of wiggle room and sometimes there isn't. And you have to listen to the signs. You have to look, look at the sidewalk. I equate it to the sidewalk at Disney, but the sidewalk doesn't move the same speed as the ride in life. You know, you get on the sidewalk and the ride, it goes along the same speed as the ride, you get on and off. Life isn't like that. Life speeds up and slows down. And if you get up too soon, you missed opportunities. If you stand too long, you hit the wall really hard. So that was the first obstacle. Rich Products allowed me to go from being a regional manager to a vice president in a very short period of time. That laid the groundwork to be here at Nuovo. I came in as the vice president. I've been here for 19 years. So the amount of business we did here when I first started in 2004 is about 10 days now in October. And, wow. <laughs> yeah. And Goodness me. We grew it what I call the old fashioned way. Nobody walked in with a big check. Everybody just did their jobs and we grew it organically and did the work every day. And again, the, the founder and the owner of the company has a great vision and great guidance. And our job is to make that vision reality. So what an incredible journey. Absolutely incredible. So what do you wish you had known? I mean, I love the idea of like, it's almost like sliding doors, isn't it? You know, these opportunities present themselves to you and you, you take a certain path and you lead to other places. And what a perfect example you've just given. But what do you wish you'd known before you started out cleaning those shelves on your career path? I guess the only thing I wish I had known is that I shouldn't have been ashamed of what I was doing and I was. And I'm embarrassed to say that. But for... A couple of years, three or four years in my 20s, I wasn't as 
upfront with the people I went to school with is what I was doing. And I should have been, and I should have understood the road I was traveling. The problem is, but the opportunity, I guess, is the number of people I came out of school with started middle management and a lot didn't survive because they didn't have that foundation to be able to build on that and build it somewhere. Listen, when I was 24, I was the smartest guy in the room. Just asking, I, I could have told you that I, I am much less smart today as I've realized all the things you don't know, but I hear people say, I wish I had done this different. Wish I had done that different. I don't wish I had done anything different. <clears throat> Honestly, every experience, good and bad builds on the next one. And you can't make good decisions without having the, what we'll call bad or negative experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. The only reason I commuted back and forth 80 miles each way for six of those years is I lived in New Jersey for two years, 10 minutes from my office and my wife was miserable. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that wasn't the way to have a family. Mm -hmm. So I was very happy to drive back and forth all those distances for all those hours a day and a week and a month and a year, because I knew what the alternative was. If I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't have been able to justify in my head, knowing what the outcome would have been otherwise. You know what they say, happy wife, happy life. And it could never have been truer. So tell me what your average day looks like now. You know, you've got the big job, you're the VP, the COO. What does the average day look like for Tom? I laugh a little because the title is often way cooler than the gig. My job really is from about 8.20 every morning till about 5.15 or 5.30. I have a stream of people in this office basically bringing their problems, looking for guidance. It's an interesting thing because I have a really, really smart group of people I'm surrounded by. I'm very, very fortunate. And they solve 98% of the problems, which means everybody brings me their 2%. And so what I get is an entire day of impossible problems that don't have real answers. So it's an interesting dynamic at this point. Up until about four years ago, I did all those functions here. So whether it was overseeing production or finance or what they now call supply chain, we just bought stuff in those days or QA and quality assurance or what have you. I did all those jobs. So it's another example of having done them. It's now a lot easier and a lot more legitimate to manage them. It certainly sounds like how many people are employed at that location? We have over 250 corporately and about yeah. 210 in the location I'm in. Wowzers, wowzers. So no, they don't all come to my office, for the record. There's not 200 people inside <laughs> my office. I was going to say that I have an executive that team of about, about 9 or 10 that come in here on a regular basis. And they gotcha. were all departments. Yes, gotcha. That would be a much longer deli counter. It would, and that 2% would suddenly hurt a lot more, for sure. Tell me a little bit then about how you first heard about conscious capitalism. Actually, I was approached by Glenn and a friend of Glenn's, and they had heard me talk and they had seen what I had written. And they thought there was a natural, and they started hearing the story. You know, again, the beauty of working with the guy who started the company is you're able to affect things. When I left Rich Products, I was downsized. You can't see because this is audio, but I was downsized enough. You have to like, you know, fire me three or four times, see my belt buckle. Listen, I feel you. I feel you. American food has done me, has done me. It, I totally identify. Well, if you're a pasta guy too, in all honesty, this, <laughs> body just, this body doesn't just happen, you know, you have to work at it. You got to put your hard head out and go to work. But I had a lot of opportunities coming out of Rich Products. And this was a very small company at the time, but I saw something. I saw a guy who had a great moral compass, wanted to do the right things, wanted to build a good ethical business and wanted to make a great product. 
And those are all the things that kind of fit with me. And I think that's how I got connected with the Curious Capitalist. You know, if you think about how that thought process that goes into that methodology, there's a lot of parallels to what I live every day. And I think that's where Glenn and the folks saw a connection there, a kinship, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah, a real synergy. So we talk in conscious capitalism often about, you know, a higher purpose within the business. Do you have a definable higher purpose with the company that you can sort of put your finger on and say, yeah, you know, we're really striving towards this, this and this? Yes, we strive to be a great, provide a great product, first of all. If you can't provide a great, you know, great tasting, high quality product, and the rest of it really doesn't matter. Equal to that, though, is being a great employer and you know, working with our employees and helping them grow. It's been very interesting. There was 35 employees here when I started. As I said, now we're over 250, 19 years later. I have in my desk drawer, a manila folder with all the artwork that any person's kid has ever drawn for me. <laughs> you soft touch, Tom. I love it. I, I, yeah, love I it. Don't tell, we, we won't tell other people that because it'll ruin my street cred. But I, that's important. You know, it really is. And when you understand their lives. I've told people for three decades, if I find out that you missed a school concert or a parent teacher night for work, I will dock you long before your spouse gets to me. And it's not because I'm a nice person. It's not because I'm the Red Cross. I'm neither of those things to be sure. But it's because I've realized over the years that if you have those other parts of your life straight and square, then you'll be focused here when I need you. And I tell people, believe me, yeah. I will get my time from you. I always do. So absolutely like it goes right. back to what you were saying earlier, you know, about, you know, making life decisions based along your family, you know, your companies are going to get the very best out of you if you've got a happy family life and home life it, and it just breeds through your employees. One of the things with conscious capitalism, we talk a great deal about obviously is leadership and culture within that business. And that's a perfect example of kind of really empowering and, and looking after your people to get the very best from them and the best for the company and hopefully, you know, the planet as well at the same time, I guess. One of the phrases I use a lot, and if you were to ask anybody here, they could tell you without even prompting, is, I'm first of all, I'm an Eagle Scout. Not a lot of kids in Boy Scouts make Eagle. About 1% of all the kids that ever joined Scouting make Eagle. So not a lot of people do it. And I had a Scoutmaster, God rest his soul, and one of his most used phrases was, leave the campsite better than when you found it. And that's both literally and figuratively. You know, we'd walk into a campsite and say, listen, I know you didn't put that candy wrapper there, but now you're burdened by the knowledge that it's there, so pick it up. And I talk to the folks here, and again, there's a lot of younger folks that I deal with, mainly being old, there's a lot more younger folks every year, so the numbers are in their favor. But I speak quite frequently about leaving the campsite better than when you found it. Everything we do in business, everything we do in life needs to point towards leaving the campsite better than when you found it. You know, when we get to the end of the the work journey and then the end of the journey journey for people to look back and say, well, you know what? This place was a little better because Quinn was here. That's not a terrible way to be remembered. Then you made a real impact. So I, I think love a lot that. Of parallels there as well. Love that, Tom. Absolutely love that. Funny enough, I had a very similar experience in my school life about the impact that I have on the world. And uh, I live a very similar line to you, I have to be honest. If you could snap your fingers and make one cultural change within your company, what would it be and why? I probably want to be able to communicate more directly with everybody. I think that's one of the few challenges. Well, it's probably a lot of challenges. One of the bigger challenges 
when you get more people in your work family, you know, it's easy to bring 30 people together and be able to speak directly firsthand. When you get to 250, you're relying on people within your organization to translate the same message. And I think that's something that if there, there were a perfect world, you'd be able to get 250 people in a room easily. Keep in mind the building I'm in runs 24 six. So there's three shifts a day. So people aren't around the same time. It's not like we're a one shift operation. You get shut down for two hours, bring everybody in if you've had a room that big, which we don't. It's three different shifts across a number of different days. So you really rely on people within the system to be able to get that message across. I was going to say, how do you manage that? You, you feed it out, I guess, through your management team and then so on we to do, your uh, teams we on do the ground. We some direct communication. We feed it out through the management team. This past summer, when the economy turned so challenging, we actually had the owner did, the founder, had a series of meetings with all the employees. It took like, I don't know, 10 meetings to, to put all together and to meet with everybody directly, which is a logistical challenge, but was necessary given the times. And I'm glad we were able to do it. But it's not something you do on a regular basis because the scheduling component is pretty significant. The Curious Capitalist podcast on behalf of the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter is created and produced by Red Rock Branding. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe to and share this podcast today. I can well imagine there's a lot of people to get through, particularly during a worldwide pandemic. You know, hats off. So back to the book, Tom. Some mm -hmm. of the highlights, pick out a couple of highlights, I guess. You know, you talk about reading through somebody's life experience so that potentially you don't have to fall into the same traps, you know, and, and make, I don't want to say mistakes because everything's a learning opportunity, of course, a learning moment, as one of my previous guests once said. But pull out a couple of key ones that, that really sort of stand out for you as the, of wisdom, I guess, that you would like to impart onto somebody. Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I wrote this book for people like me. So every chapter is three to four pages long. And I took all the key learnings and I separated them in bold and italics off in the text. So if somebody actually made you read this thing, you could scan through and make it sound like you actually read it by pulling out the key points. The other reason I made the chapter so short is it's terrible when you sit there at night in bed and you want to finish the chapter. You want to have that sense of accomplishment and you start flipping ahead to see how yes. many pages there is. Yes. It's like 10 or 15 pages, you get really downtrodden. You don't want to do it. Yeah. Here, you can read a couple of chapters and call it a day. Good and, man. And that's the beauty of it. And I think that's important, you know, <laughs> people learn through stories. So if I were to pick out a couple of nuggets, one of them was what I just said, leave the campsite for when you found it. It's one of my four tenants. Also, I put in my five parts of management. The one I'll put out there though, is that management's not a spectator sport. You need to be involved. And I talk about that. And I think that's really the key. If you go with that approach, I've always believed in being the underdog and you have to earn this chair every day. If you don't earn the chair every day, then you're not doing anybody any favors. Now, the fact is we're all humans. You're not gonna earn it every day, but you have to acknowledge that and be honest with yourself and then earn it twice tomorrow. And that's okay. You gotta go into the day to earn the chair again. It's not a gift. It's not a, they don't bestow it upon you. And mm. anybody that thinks that you might as well pack up your stuff because your time is short. And you're you're essentially taking it for granted, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of people do. They get to a certain level. When and I was Greece. a young man, I saw these vice presidents and I said, wow, it would be great when I get to be a vice president, I know all these things. And I was waiting <laughs> for that time life, big book of knowledge to arrive on my doorstep. 
And I don't know, it's kind of like the you know Great Plains of World War II, that whole series. So I was waiting for the great big book of knowledge to come. And I don't know if they didn't get my address right or whatever. <laughs> it never really arrived. And then I realized that all the people that I looked up to as vice presidents just sounded very confident and used their experience to guess better. And they had a higher success ratio because they had experience to guess better. But they were still guessing. Call it whatever you want to do. You know, we can call it estimating. We can call it projecting. We can put all these business words to it. They were guessing. But they had a high batting average, so people listened to their guesses, <laughs> and it worked out. And I talk about that, too, because you see the end result of, of people's careers. You say, wow, I want to be that. Well, it's a long road to that, and it's all those things. So I talk about that. I talk about partnerships. I talk about how having the people around you is so critical. The partnership with my wife, I'll be married 35 years in March. Yeah, I lost 10 bucks American on that deal. I thought she would have beaten me with a, with a stick long before then. And <laughs> a jury would never have convicted her, just for the record. But, you know, having, the, having those people around you and being grateful. It's the fifth management tenant to say thank you. It doesn't cost you a dime. And it's the, one of the things that's most overlooked by, by managers sometimes. I, I really make a agree. distinction between yep. managers and leaders. Yep. Management is a title that people, you know, assign to you. Mm. Leadership is people willing to follow you. A leader walking down the street with nobody willing to follow is just a guy walking down the street. Okay? Beautifully you really have to earn, you have to earn the respect. Nobody can give that to you. They can give you authority, but you have to earn respect. And that's pretty I couldn't pretty have put it any better myself. That's a beautiful example of why culture and leadership you know, particularly when we think about conscious capitalism and how people are choosing to run their businesses, how important it is to get that buy-in, how it, to earn that seat on a daily basis, to have people wanting to follow you. You know, it's it's a beautiful example and analogy of, of what it's all about, Tom. That's, that's beautifully put. So a little bit about you then. Tell me a little bit about what you do, other than obviously desperately try and keep your wife happy and away from New Jersey. What what do you like to do to unwind and relax when you're not working and earning your seat? Well, despite that noble goal, I do a number <laughs> of things. I ride a motorcycle. I've been riding since I was 18 years old. Ooh. I have progressed up to a Harley Davidson, which you go through about four or five different layers of bikes before you can afford a Harley Davidson. This is the um, management progression, isn't it? This is like in line with your yes. career. You get to yes. VP, you get your Harley. Okay, got yes, it. Yes, exactly. Just check Exactly. <laughs> and when I pull up in front of the buildings, I'll ride to work periodically in a leather jacket and, and wrap around glasses. You're like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the vice president. So <laughs> it, it makes an impact. We have two great kids. We have a 26-year-old son who is a sous chef for the Hotel DuPont down in Wilmington, Delaware, which is a four-star hotel. Wow. Uh, he got that job out of cooking school. We actually had him here recently for the holidays, and he made a great meal for us. And people say, well, that's a great meal. I said, that's a very expensive meal. That's a $160,000 meal. I hope you enjoyed it. Our daughter is 23. She's in marine education. She's down in Key Largo, Florida these days. And she basically takes kids, school kids that come to her place, and she'll take them out to the uh, protected reef out in the middle of the ocean and teaches them about proper stewardship of the ocean, the animals that are out there, how to care for it, which is really wow. her jam. What a and, great and she gig. that part. So we do that. Short of that, I've really enjoyed getting out and chatting with folks about these learnings and what's been published. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. I actually been asked to somewhere in the early next year, go to a couple of different universities 
and speak to students there. And to be honest with you, this has never been about making a nickel on this. I would like to, I'd like to break even. I mean, you know, breaking even is a, a noble goal. Even making a couple of buckets is okay. But the ability to get these lessons out, as far as I'm concerned, fulfills the promise I made to the people that taught me. I had mm. some great mentors yeah. and they were very gracious with their time and their learnings and their knowledge. And my deal with them was always when the time came to it, that I would share, I would add whatever I could add to it and, and yep. share those again. So as far as I'm concerned, this makes us square. You are passing it on. I love that. When it comes to sort of, I guess, the promotion of the book and, you know, being asked to speak in certain places, do, do you have to do like a, I don't want it to sound too grand, but like a little tour to push the book? Or you've been invited to speak at a number of different places or yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been asked, to, I've been very gracious. People have asked me to go different places. Cape View Press is actually an independent publishing house. I say it's independent because I am Cape View Press. We, we awesome. have a location. My wife and I bought a, a retirement home up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Beautiful part um, of the world. So yeah, it's about three and a half hours from where we live here. So we go up every other weekend. And every time I bring a box up, it stays there. And when this <laughs> process was in, in its formative stages, I had to come up with a name for the publishing company. So I looked out my window and I said, what do I have? I seem to have a Cape View. That seems good. We'll go with that. Beautiful. So, Love it. Uh, the upside of that is you have a lot of control over what happens. The yeah. downside of that is you're the control of what happens. Yep. So there's no promotion except for whatever you promote. There's no yep. push, whatever you do. We had a great launch in September of, of this year, and we had about 60 people show up to the local library. Fab. For a big kickoff. That's great. Night. Yeah, it was wonderful. Awesome. And I had told the group, you know, that was there. I said, I've dreamt of this. This is true. I dreamt of this moment over 3,000 times over 10 years that night of the kickoff. And I said, in 1,502 of them, it was a night like this where the room was full and a magical evening I remember forever. In 1,498 of them, three people showed up and I forgot my pants. So, <laughs> I, I thank the group for being part of the 1,502. So, you should have got t-shirts made. 1,502 club, it would have been awesome. And I tell you what, the folks here on their own, they had water bottles yep. and they, they rewrapped all the water bottles and it had a picture of the book and it had leave the campsite better than when you found it. Uh, so that was a takeaway that people had. And it's really humbling when you see all the folks that give of themselves just to help you. For sure. And they don't For want sure. to get back from it. They just do it just to help you. I would say it leaves me speechless, but you probably figured out already that's not a thing. Nope. But it certainly is extremely, extremely humbling. So So with Cape View, what's what's the plan? You're gonna write a, are you gonna write more? Or are you going to have, yeah. are you going to publish other people's work? I mean, is it going to grow? Um, is this going to be a retirement project? The plan is not to publish other people's work, but I believe you have to listen to the sidewalk. Uh, so who's to say what will come up along the way? But I am still writing. There's still more observations to be had. There's still more things to learn. There's still more, more mistakes to be made. You would think I would have capped out my mistakes in the first two, but not so much. Nope. There's, there's make, new ones, make new ones. Make new ones. Exactly. Doing yeah. exciting mistakes. Don't use the same one twice. But I am still writing. So I, I expect that if this goes the way I'm really uh, hoping it's going to continue to go, then somewhere down the road, there'll be another book. That would be amazing. If for no other reason, just to keep sharing the lessons. I love that. It's essentially you're a, a modern day teacher without a classroom. You're imparting your knowledge to help people, you know, improve and get the very best 
out of their lives and the opportunities that are, they're going to be presented with. And for them to come to the party with the right attitude to be able to absorb that lesson when it happens. I like that. I really like that a lot. So last couple of questions before I let you get on with your very busy yeah. day. Tell me if you could have a fictitious dinner party with anybody and you could invite any guests from history, alive or dead, give me a couple of people that you would invite to your dinner party. I'm assuming your son would cook. And what questions might you ask? Well, that's a tough one. That's right up there with the job interview. What kind of tree would you be if you were a tree? Um, <laughs> I, I was never able one. to answer that question properly, by the way. I, I found <laughs> giving my height and body frame, I was more of a shrub. I guess some of the interesting people I would have at a dinner party like that <sighs> would be people that have had challenging situations and come through on the other side. And then, you know, then, then there's some selfish ones. You know, I think FDR would be an interesting person to talk to only because when you're coming out of the depression and going into a world war, I mean, that's a thing, you know, it really is, you know, and some of these are stock things, but they're really interesting things. You know, Abraham Lincoln, for example, the whole place was breaking up on his watch and it wasn't that far from when it all got started. You know, you're really talking about maybe 90 years. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion that this deal, America was gonna be America. And he's watched this whole thing break apart in his watch. You talk about dealing with a 2% of problems. That's a really a 2% of problems day. And every day was like that. It was pretty heavy duty. <laughs> For um, sure. You know, that kind of stuff. I'd also love to have Stephen King there. Yeah. Because I got a chance to see him speak at a national book festival in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. And just a very interesting story. And just a, seems like a really down-to-earth guy. So I think that yeah. would be interesting from a literary perspective. And then probably Eric Clapton, maybe. I'm quite yeah. a music file. So uh -huh. that's always an interesting thing. I'm not envious of a lot of things. I am envious of musicians. I was we'll in radio. We'll lend you a Brit. We'll lend you a Brit for your dinner party. You can have there it. There you go. He yeah, spends more time over this side anyway. <laughs> exactly. Thanks. I was in radio for five years Excellent. because I loved music. That was one of the great lessons I had. because I became station manager at the end of my yeah. tenure. Awesome. And to be able to manage 90 of your peers and move them forward and organize them without being able to pay them, that's a lesson that you take with you through your entire life. It's Once one that I, I've got to say, I've had the same experience. 25 years of radio, and I always describe being a station manager as the chief cat herder. Yes. And, and you know, what really stood out to me, something you said earlier on, and it, and it really did take me back to my radio days, was the importance of thank you, particularly when you're dealing with a semi-employed and a semi-volunteer workforce that thank you that I would always find the time to do, to sit down with someone and say, do you know what, that, 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 and that, that you did this week are fabulous. Thank you so much, you know, for yeah. your contribution goes a whole long way. It truly does. I think sometimes we get so caught up in, in business and running to stay still that we forget to just sit down and say, do you know what, that was great. Thanks so much. One of the things I did when I first took over station manager is I called, we were on the air 22 hours a day. Yep. And I called every shift for the first two weeks. So I would catnap for the first two weeks. It was college radio. And I would call every shift when I was listening. And then eventually I became like a ghost. They always thought I was listening. They never knew when I'd be around. So once you create that, <laughs> oh. it was actually a perfect career path too. Because I was told multiple times I had a face that was perfect for radio. Absolutely. I realized later that was not a compliment. Listen, I've been using that line for the best part of 25 years, and that is the reason why now you have my dulcet tones on the Curious Capitalist and definitely not the face. Face for radio. <laughs> <laughs>
But there's been some great key learnings. I've been very, very fortunate. And you have to be aware of your surroundings and listen. One of the things I think this book really taught me was that everybody has a story. And we're all in such a rush to go nowhere that we don't think we have 10 minutes to hear the story. And every story you learn something from. Sometimes it's a cautionary tale. Sometimes it's, I'm never going to do that. That's a terrible idea. But you always learn something. And I think that really opened my eyes. And you see more opportunities that way. Tom, you're an inspirational fella. You've managed to hang on to your wife. And you've got your plans, I guess, with your Cape View Press. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure today. How can people get their mitts? How can they get their hands on this book of life learnings? Because I got to be honest, I'm, you, you had me at the short chapters. I mean, I'm game for this book straight away because I am that person who lies in bed, just going to get to the end of the chapter. Where can I get it? How can I get hold of your book? You can get it at most online retailers, Amazon and Barnes & Noble both. If you happen to be in the Connecticut area, the Fairfield University Bookstore, which was my alma oh, mater, yep. is actually stocking it on shelf. And Beautiful. we're working against some other places, but again, almost every online retailer I found, I found it on target.com to my own surprise. So, but Amazon Barnes and Noble, you can probably get within a couple of days. Beautiful. I will also put it in the show notes for this show. So wherever you're listening right now, do take a look at the show notes. I will put a link in there so that you can get your hands on the teachings of Tom Quinn. Sounds like a Victorian, a Dickens novel, doesn't it? I love it. Tom, it's been such a privilege chatting to you today. I wish you all the luck in the world. And I too will go forth and leave the campsite cleaner and tidier and much nicer than when I found it. Thanks for the time, Claire. I really appreciate the time with you as well. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Curious Capitalist. If you would like to find out more about conscious capitalism, or if you would like to join the local chapter, visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. The Curious Capitalist is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, subscribe to and share this podcast today. This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding. RedRockBranding.com